All right, everybody. Well, hey, welcome to New Life. Glad you guys are here. If you would, just go ahead and find a seat. That would be great. If you are a guest with us, my name is Jeff Baker. I have the privilege, the unique privilege of being the, uh, the lead pastor here at, uh, at New Life. So it's a joy to serve at this church, it's a joy to serve in this community. So if you live anywhere nearby, um, we want to thank you for coming, and we want to invite you to come back and worship with us again, all right? Like maybe next week or something like that. But... Um, Listen, we, uh, today is Easter, if you didn't know that, and we have our famous Easter elephant here with us. Some of you are thinking to yourself, wow, that's really strange and weird. I walked in and there's an elephant in the lobby and now there's an elephant on the stage. I, I don't think we're in the right church, you know? It's normally like the Easter, the Easter bunny, right? All right, I know, I got it. So, no, this is not the Easter elephant, and no, we haven't, we haven't gone crazy, and no, if you're sitting in the back, you shouldn't get up and leave right now. Um, what we've done is this, we've, we've empowered you. It sounds crazy. We probably shouldn't have done it. Um, if I would have asked advice from other pastor friends, they would have told me, don't do it, don't go there, this is not going to be smart. But what we're doing today is we're empowering you on Easter, all right? On Easter, you get to pick the topics we're going to preach on in August. Yeah, you get to pick them, and then we're going to preach them. And so what we're doing is we're calling it the elephant in the... There you go. You ever heard the elephant in the room? Yeah, it's always that issue you wanted to bring up, you wanted to talk about, but you never did. It was always that thing everybody knew was out there, but you never addressed well, today, we're going we're gonna to pull back the, the veils on the Bible and God's Word, and we're going to let you pick the elephant in the room topic. So if you would, please, in your bulletin, there is a, uh, there's, a little pull, there's a little handout. If you'll take that handout, um, in just a second, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to, uh, to mark three items. That's all you get to mark, okay? Now, you'll notice at the top of that is a, uh, is a small URL that you can type into your smartphone device this morning. Uh, that will take you to a Google form if you'd rather do it that way. And then just digitally, it will just be submitted and come right to me. So there's a couple of different ways you can do that. I'll leave that Google form out there for a couple of weeks. Um, can you vote more than once? Absolutely. All right? So uh, go in there and vote for those things. So we're going to give you 30 seconds. I want you to mark down the issues that you would love to hear us preach on in August. And then I'll tell you, I'll tell you what to do with those things in just a second. Let's roll the countdown. All right? Make this happen. Talk amongst yourself, by the way. You can do that. All right, no cheating, no cheating, you know. Can't cheat off the person next to you. All right, but you got those things filled out? All right, here's what you're going to do with them, all right? You're going to take that along with the response card that's in front of you that um, I would like for each and every single one of you in this place to fill out today just to let me know that you're here today. I'd like you to take those things, and at the end of our, at the end of our service today, then I'm going to ask you to turn those in. Our ushers will be at the back doors. They'll have baskets there. You can just drop them in. We're going to collect these, and we're going to figure out what the, uh, the top items are, and then we're going to preach on those things in August. So I want you to fill out a response card, because that's how I'm going to be able to let you know that we're preaching on these things. I'll send you an email, so give me your email address. Uh, I'll send you an email, that way you'll know when it's starting, what's happening, and what's going on. Is that fair? All right? So, look, there you go. Your very first act 
on Easter, coming to new life, is to give us feedback. It wasn't us to preach at you. It wasn't us to do anything. It was just to ask you your opinion. So thanks for being here. Well, if, if you noticed just a minute ago when we greeted each other, we had Indiana Jones music playing. That may have also been an indicator that you were in the wrong place and that you wanted to try to leave right then as well. So, so far, we, I know we've started out on some shaky ground. Elephants on the stage, Indiana Jones music playing. But that's because we're in a current teaching series that we've entitled Relics. And we're really looking at some of these ancient items that man has a strong desire to find or claims to say that he has found them. We're looking at them, though, to help us discover what's the true power of God. So today I want you to kind of go on a spiritual archaeological dig with me as we, as we dive in to look at our next topic. Today, today, Easter, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to talk a lot about that today. And there's only one relic that really draws our attention to the resurrection of Jesus more than anything else. And you might go, well, it's the empty tomb. Um, no, it is. it would be the shroud, the shroud of Turin. This shroud, this piece of cloth that, you know, speaks about, it points you towards the concept of, wow, if this thing represents someone who has been crucified, then where is the body? And a lot of, a lot of people would believe then that the body of that person was Jesus. We'll talk about that and discover, is that true? Is that not true today? Well, a couple of days ago was Good Friday. How many of you guys ended up in some kind of a worship service on Good Friday? All right, very good. How many of you guys ended up at the, uh, in the Carney one, the community one that we had over at the E-Free Church? Come on, let me hear you. You guys like that? We had a blast. We had a blast. Now, Friday, Good Friday, as it's called, is the day that, you know, we, we look back and we, we talk about Jesus giving his life on the cross. Easter, on the other hand, is the day that we look at and we discover the power of his resurrection, that Jesus is alive today. That's why we're here. So the shroud, what does it, what does it point to? How does it, how does it point to the resurrection of Jesus? Well, first thing you need to know is that the shroud is about a 14 foot long piece of cloth that would have been used to wrap a body at death. Um, and that this shroud is currently right now, since it was, uh, it was, it's been traded back and forth by different people and different, different, uh, families that have power and strength and wealth have had their hands on this thing throughout the centuries. But, uh, at least in recent history, we know that in 1578, it showed up in the cathedral of St. Saint, uh, John the Baptist in Turin, Italy. And that's where it basically has been since 1578. So at least since 1578, we have a really good idea of what this thing is and where it came from. Now before then, it just passed hands over and over again. But the shroud, the shroud finds its relic mystery behind a passage of scripture that's located in John chapter 20. Take a look at this passage of scripture. It says that when Simon Peter, which was one of the disciples of Jesus, when he got there, where did he get? He went into the tomb. So he was going to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid. Um, this is actually on Sunday concept. It's today, the day that Jesus had rose from the dead. So when he went into the tomb and he saw the strips of cloth, he also saw the piece of cloth that had been used to cover Jesus' face. It was rolled up and in a place by itself. Now, we also know that in Matthew, Matthew 27, verse 59, that Joseph says that Joseph of Arimathea, he took the body of Christ and he was, he was going to bury the body of Christ in his very own tomb that no one else had been buried in. 
But it also says in that passage in Matthew that he wrapped the body of Christ in a cloth. Now, studies, studies have been performed on the cloth many times. Many different times they've done tests and they've tried to discover what its date is and, you know, what are the elements that are on it and all the different tests that have been run. It seems like almost every single test that gets run on the thing throughout the time period of which, you know, modern science has been doing that, that every time it comes back, it's a different date that it takes it back to. Some take it back to the time of Jesus. Others take it back to more of a medieval period. Some have said that the, that the stains that are on the cloth are actual blood. Others have said that it's, it's paint and they've gone back and forth and it just seems that every time this piece of cloth is studied the controversy behind it gets greater and greater and deeper and deeper wrapped in some sort of a mystery now there are some things that we do know about it back in 1898 there was a photograph that was taken of it as it was on display um, a man goes in and he takes a photograph of it he didn't really think anything of it you know But when he got back and he started looking at the negative that had been produced by this picture, that's where you start seeing this imagery of this face and of this body really coming out. They could already tell that it was there, but man, it just started jumping off the page. And the mystery behind it really started to grow. As you could discover what this man really kind of looked like, his elongated face, the beard, you know, with chunks of it missing off of his face. You You could start to see a lot, especially as they looked at the negative. And then forensic reports recently were done on it as well by a couple of doctors from America. And these guys, they state together, both independent sources, they, they're not buddies, they're not from the same, you know, firm or anything. Uh, they don't work together. So one did it, the other one tested it, and they both say that the, that it's unquestionable that the fact that this thing is authentic and it's real and that somebody was actually laid in it. They say, that from the forensic data that was done on the shroud, that there was a male that was laid in this cloth. This male was five foot eleven, and they estimate his weight to be about one hundred and seventy-eight pounds wrapped in this cloth. They they can say for certain that the man that is in the cloth was crucified, because as he lays there with his hands over one another, there is a pierced wound that goes through the wrist, right where they would have pierced a person to the cross. Because you don't hang someone on the cross through their hand, because the weight of their flesh would just pull it right through them. So it went right through the two bones, and they have got this big, big hole, this big mark there that shows that wound. It also shows a wound that is on the feet. But remarkably, it also shows that there are multiple wounds that go around the head where blood has come out and oozed itself down the face. Those are, those are amazing things. But they also discovered that the pierce, there was a pierced um, uh, knife that had gone up through the ribs, it had gone into um, the lungs, and it, into the heart. And that as the body laid there, uh, after death, that blood and clear serum actually flowed out of that and pooled up underneath the man, which stained the cloth. But they also, that's not even where it stopped, but they also could tell that on the back of the man, the front of the man, and the sides of the man, there are lacerations all over the place. Lacerations that are cut deep. Lacerations that left bruising. Lacerations that cut into spleens, into the kidneys. 
And they say that, oh, that can only come really from one source at that particular time, which we already know from historical data that when you got crucified on a cross, you had to go through the whip. You had to go through what was called the Roman flogrum. And this flogrum would have been a device like a whip that had two or three pieces that came out of it with, you know, bone tied to the end of it and lead tied to the end of it. It would have struck the body and bruised the body and broke down the muscle tissue and it would have cut through and it caused a lot of damage. And this body is covered with these lacerations. Now, you might find this to be interesting, but the passage that we read that creates the evidence for the fact that Jesus had been wrapped in a linen, there were some words there. It said that, that the, the linens had been rolled up. In some, in some of your Bibles, it will say that the linens have been folded up. Well, don't be, don't be mistaken, all right? Moms, don't get excited about saying, kids, you need to be like Jesus. You need to fold up your clothes. That's what he did when he got resurrected. (laughs) You can't really do that, okay? Because that's not what the word means. The word doesn't mean that Jesus rose again, wrapped in all of this cloth like a mummy, and then he unwraps himself and decides to neatly fold it and sit it there where he was laying. That's not what the word means at all. That what the word literally means is that the... The linens were left as if a body had been in them. And that when Peter goes into the tomb and he looks at these linens, they're rolled up or they are folded up, and that the body, the body wrappings and the head wrappings are just laid right where they were at as if a body was in it, and then poof, a body is out of it, but it's just flattened now. And it baffled them. It almost scared them. It almost intimidated them. It almost caused them to go, whoa, this is crazy. This is weird. What in the world's going on here? But that was the evidence. And then, so man has been looking at this piece of cloth, this shroud, trying to pin it back to Jesus. The shroud, the shroud without argument is the most controversial artifact or relic that's ever been discovered by man. It is most likely the most studied detailed, studied artifact that's ever been discovered by man. You can see why all the controversy is around it. I'll say this to you today based on the shroud. The shroud most likely is not authentic. But what it points to is. The shroud is most likely just a piece of cloth that's been found. It's been, happened to be wrapped around a man that was crucified. But it's probably not Jesus. But the power of it points to something that is revolutionary, that changes your life. It's called the power of the resurrection. See, the power of the resurrection is where you need to focus your attention. It's the power of the resurrection is where you need to land. The power of the resurrection points to the fact that it confirms that Jesus is God. Jesus is the only one who's ever said, guys, I'm going to be dead for three days in a grave, and then I'm going to come back to life. Watch, it's going to happen. In fact, Jesus said this in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. says that he, Jesus, he said to them that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. It's this kind of statement, and it's this 
reality that sets Jesus apart from any other person that's ever called themselves God. It's this reality that sets Christianity apart from any other world religion. There isn't another world religion. There isn't another person that's ever been dead for three days to rise again to proclaim themselves as the Son of God. There isn't anyone that ever has. There will never be anyone that will. Jesus is the only one. And today, that's why we're here. We're here today to point to the power of the resurrection for your life. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, declared this about Jesus. It says, and he, Jesus, he was shown to be the Son of God. Proven to be. Declared to be. He was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was shown to be. Proven to be. There isn't anyone else in all of history that can claim that same title. That's part of the power of the resurrection, though, is that it points to Jesus being God. This is crucial for our faith. It's crucial for humanity. It's crucial for the future of your life that the resurrection points to Jesus being God. But secondly, it brings life to the believer. It brings life to the person who decides to make Jesus the Lord and the leader of their life. Jesus said this about himself in John chapter 11. He says that I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. You know what this tells us? The resurrection brings life to the believer because it takes the punishment or the curse of sin and it crushes it, allowing you to come alive in Christ. Otherwise, your sin... Your sin condemns you. Your sin corrupts you. Your sin separates you from God. Your sin will literally send you to an eternity away from God. That's the punishment of sin. But Jesus came, and because He rose again, He conquered sin. He conquered the punishment of sin, and He paid the price for your sin on the cross. That's part of why we have life as a believer. But that's not where it ends. There's also, it says in this passage, that there's life beyond this world because of the resurrection. That you can know that if today, today, for, un, for some uncertain um, uh, reason, you were to die, you were to give up your last breath, that if you lived your life devoting yourself to Christ, if Jesus has become your Lord and leader, even this morning, you need to know that by the power of Christ and His resurrection, you would spend eternity with God in heaven because of His resurrection. See, Christianity is built a lot around the cross. You see crosses in auditoriums. You see crosses that hang on churches. You see crosses that hang on necks. There's t-shirts with crosses. But the cross was just a way to get to the power of the resurrection. To be resurrected, you first have to have been dead. Jesus gave his life as a, as a sacrifice on the cross so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he might be raised again to life so that we can be set free and we can live a life free of sin, and a life full of hope, knowing that eternity is going to be spent with God. That this life is just part of it, but it's not where it ends. Thirdly, though, the power of the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. See, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. It's just a bunch of good words, good writings. The resurrection brings the power behind it. It puts the exclamation mark at the end of every statement that's made in the Bible. It puts the exclamation mark behind every single sermon that's preached today around the world on the resurrection and the truth of who Jesus is. 
It's the foundation of our faith. And the Apostle Paul boldly declared this when he wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said it this way. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. It's the truth, guys. That if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, you and me are just wasting our time today. Stay home, eat more chocolate, hunt more Easter eggs. Do that anyways. But you shouldn't have come here. Pity on us. Foolishness on us. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. But I'm telling you, for generations and generations from our grandparents and their grandparents to their grandparents to so on and so on, that the, that the story, the truth of Jesus has been passed down from generation to generation and declares that the foundation of Christianity is built on one thing and one thing only, and that is Christ, Him crucified, and that He rose from the dead. And that Jesus is alive. Yeah, and you can trust that. You can trust that because without the resurrection, Christianity is powerless. Without the resurrection, there's nothing to hope for beyond this world. Go live the way you want to. Go spend all your money however you want to. Go be as foolish as you want to. But I'm telling you, there is a resurrection. And that means there's a price that will be paid for all those actions. The resurrection sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. The resurrection has become the backbone of our faith. Okay, so if that's true, then how do you prove the resurrection? How do you, how do you prove it? Where are you going to go? How are you going to come up? To, how are you going to stand up and say, the resurrection is, is true? This guy died, he was in the grave for three days, and now he's alive. I propose to you today, for the rest of our time, that we do something extremely radical today. I propose that we put the resurrection on trial. And that you become the prosecuting attorney. You're like, well, hold on, I didn't come prepared for anything. That's okay, because you're going to prosecute it in your heart. You're going to prosecute it in your mind. You're going to wrestle with the things that you already wrestle with. I want you to be the jury today. And I want to, I want to display a, a case as a defense attorney to you. And in the end, I want you to be the judge. And I want you to decide for yourself whether the resurrection is true or it's not true. I say we put the resurrection on trial. So would you please sit back, would you get ready to take a couple of notes, and would you get ready to go on a journey with me as I look at a few exhibits. i got exhibits A through G that I'm going to bring to the table very quickly to help you understand what's the evidence of the resurrection and is it something that you can put your hope in because it should be the backbone of Christianity. And if you can't believe in the resurrection, you can't believe in any of it. If you can't believe in the resurrection, then you can't believe that there's a God. If you can't believe in the resurrection, then who created all of this? The resurrection is the backbone of all, of all truth, of all faith, of all eternity. The resurrection is the backbone that points to the one true living God. The resurrection going on trial right here at New Life today. My first exhibit, exhibit A, I pointed to it earlier, it's the shroud. The shroud. Now the shroud is just one relic, right? And it points to the power of the resurrection. 
But I propose to you today that the shroud isn't a credible piece. It's not credible enough to go to be a piece that would prove the resurrection. So I'm going to take the shroud and I'm setting it to the side. It's not something that I choose to use today. There are many more pieces of evidence that are much more powerful than some piece of cloth that has some legend to it that gets passed down from generation to generation. That millions and millions of people have spent thousands and thousands of dollars to go see and try to put their hope in. I'm telling you there's greater evidence than things like that. Exhibit B. All four writings of the Gospels tell about the resurrection. All four Gospels, Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that start your New Testament, all four of those have written in them the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And here's the, here's the amazing part of it. None of them contradict one another. All of them point to the exact same story with the exact same ending. All of them have, yes, different chunks and different pieces as different people wrote about it. But they all point to the same essence. Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. But here's something you need to know about those four Gospels. The first one, Matthew, it was written somewhere in the 60s AD. Meaning it was written somewhere between 30 and 40 years after Christ gives his life on the cross. It was written for Jewish believers. From a first-person perspective, being Matthew, one of the twelve disciples of Christ. He writes this thing 30 to 40 years after Christ's death, but he writes it somewhere in or near Jerusalem. That's important to remember. 30 to 40 years afterwards, and he writes it in Jerusalem or nearby. But here's the another piece. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the next one. It's written somewhere between 55 and 65 AD. Mark, that Gospel, was the very first Gospel to be written. It was the first one. It's also the shortest one. It's written somewhere between 25 and 35 years after Christ's death on the cross. But this one is pretty unique. This one's written in Rome for Roman believers. One of them's written in Jerusalem. The other one's written in Rome. We don't, they don't live on a planet at that time where they just hop on a plane and go back and forth. They don't live on, at a time frame where they just post their, in, their, their thoughts on the internet and someone else gets it. They live in a time period where it takes a long time to get from one place to the other, but the information doesn't contradict itself. Not only that, Mark wasn't even a first-hand person that saw it with his own eyes. Mark is believed and historically documented that he got his message from Peter in Rome and he documents it and he writes it down and then he sends it out. It's a powerful display of the current day of how they transferred information verbally from one person to another. And even in the verbal transformation, it still maintained its integrity and there is no contradiction between Mark and Matthew. Okay, that's cool between two. But how about if we add in a third one? Let's add in Luke. Luke is now written between 60 and 63 AD, putting it again somewhere between 30 and 33 years or so after the death of Christ. It's written to a friend by the name of Theophilus. And Luke is a man that is studied. Luke is a man that is educated. Luke is a man to believe to have been a doctor. The gospel of Luke is the longest gospel. It's the gospel that's used with the greatest amount of verbiage. Luke is the one who uses some of the more larger words, showing some of his own education. But even Luke, when it comes to the death and the resurrection of Christ, is spot on the money. And he writes in there and he declares how Jesus was crucified and how he rose again. Luke wrote this over a period of time 
finished it somewhere in Rome. And, and these are the only two people that possibly could have ran a course with one another, Luke and Mark, somewhere in Rome. But what you need to know is this. Mark's gospel was written first, and it was a short one. Luke's gospel was written next, and it was a long one. I don't believe that they used the same notes, even if they ran into one another. But then we got the last one. So three of them don't contradict. How about John? Does he contradict? Because, by the way, John's gospel was written somewhere between 80 and 95 AD. Quite a long period of time from the 60s. You're adding on... You're adding on quite a bit of time. A lot of things could change in that period of time. Gospel of John's written by John. Another one of the twelve disciples. Most likely it's written in Ephesus as a tool to really help people put their faith in Jesus. And in that gospel, he writes about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Written by four different people in four different places in four different ways to four different groups of people And all of them have the exact same truth in them? What is the likelihood of that? But let's look at Exhibit C. Exhibit C is the chief priest tried to cover up the resurrection. The the priest who actually had Christ crucified tried to cover it up. Take a look at what happened in Matthew chapter 28. It says this, That early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a deep faint. Or they fainted, basically. Verse 5, Then the angel spoke to the woman, Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. Check this out. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said that it would happen. Come see where his body was laying. So here's these, these two women that are going out. They're going out to, you know, be at the tomb where Jesus is laid. The guards are there. Why are the guards there? The guards are there because the chief priests felt like, we got to put some guards here because I don't want these Christians coming out and stealing the body of Jesus so they can walk all over the place and proclaim, He's risen! He's risen! So they put guards out there. More than one, by the way. And then an angel of the Lord shows up, and what happens to the guards? These big, burly men. They get scared, faint, fall flat to the ground. That's what happens to them. So what takes place, what takes place while they've fainted, and now they're starting to wake back up? Well, let's finish this story just a couple of verses later in verse 11. It says, "Women, as, As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priest what had happened. So as the women were leaving the tomb, the guards decide, Hey, the two of you guys, you stay here. we got to go in and tell these uh, these high priests what took place. All right, what happened? Verse 12. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers... Look what happened. They gave them what? A large... Bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say this. Listen to what he said. Jesus' disciples came during the night while you were sleeping, basically, and they stole his body. Now, if the governor or your boss hears about it, we'll stand up for you so that you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe, because it was had to be many times more than what they were making on a regular basis. And they said what they were told by the high priest. Their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. Who's writing this one? Matthew. 
How many years after Jesus' death was it written? 30 to 40 years. 30 to 40 years later, they're still telling the story among one another that Jesus, His disciples came, that the guards fell asleep. Now, if the guards would have fell asleep, they would have been beaten severely, if not killed. The priests had to have a lot of money to back these guys up. And they did it for a purpose. Why? Because they were scared. They're scared. Why would they cover up the fact that Jesus, that Jesus, an angel showed up and that Jesus disappeared from, from, the, uh, from the tomb? Why would they cover that up if it, if it wasn't the truth? Why would they put out all these bribes if there wasn't a fact to it that Jesus wasn't taken by his disciples, but that mysteriously Jesus is not in the tomb, he's awoken, and that an angel shows up and said, he's not here anymore. He's risen. That was the message the guards took back to the chief priests. The chief priests were amazingly scared and tried to pay them off. Exhibit D. Jesus appeared to many after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what it says about the amount of people Jesus showed himself to after rising again from the dead. As he was seen by Peter... That's Jesus. Jesus was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than how many? 500 of his followers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have died, according to the timing of this writing. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, written by Paul, one of the great apostles who wrote most of the New Testament, he goes, Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Jesus shows up to more than 500 plus people who will testify to the fact that they saw Jesus. This is basically irrefutable evidence. You have 500 people that all saw the same thing. Guess what happens in a court of law? Boom, that becomes the truth. 500 plus people saw that Jesus had risen and they were all willing to testify to the fact that Jesus had risen and that they had seen him according to the writings of 1 Corinthians. Paul, who is one of the most credible writers of the entire New Testament, who is one of the most profound characters of the entire Bible, who historically is written about, not just in the Bible, but in also other documents. It's documented to the fact that Paul actually existed. He was on this earth and that he was a credible man because we know he had been a Pharisee of his own. Paul had been a man who had studied the scriptures. Paul had been a man who had done some pretty amazing things. He was a very well-educated man. Paul writes about it and says 500 plus people saw Jesus. Jesus even showed up and sometimes and freaked out his disciples. Can you imagine if you had risen from the dead and your body was, was not like this body? Your body could just like, whoom, go through a wall. Can you imagine what you might do to some of your friends? That's what Jesus did to his friends. Look at what John chapter 20 has to say. It says that that Sunday evening, that means tonight, tonight, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. You would be afraid of these people too. They just crucified your buddy. They just put your leader in the, on the cross. And now the rumors are going around that Jesus has risen and the disciples are freaking out because they're wondering if the Jewish leaders are going to come after them and throw them into the dungeons claiming that you guys are the ones who stole Jesus. They hear that the rumors are out there, but they also are hearing of these rumors that people are starting to hear and see of this risen Jesus. Suddenly... Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. 
Can you imagine this? I mean, just think of this. You're all scared. You're all huddled around. You're talking about the day. And you're just wondering to yourself, what in the world's happening? And then suddenly, Jesus shows up. Peace be with you guys. Whoa! you imagine what that would have been like? Could you imagine? Like, you turn around and you're like, Holy cow! He goes, no, holy me. I'm holy. Right? And you're like, Jesus, what are you doing? But suddenly he shows up. All the doors are locked. And he shows up into this place. What does that tell me? This is what it tells me. At the tomb, the stone had been rolled away. That the angel was sitting on it. I got amazing news for you. Jesus didn't need a stone to be rolled away to rise again. If he can suddenly show up where his disciples are, through through walls and doors, without them even being locked, he doesn't need a stone rolled away. You needed the stone rolled away. You needed Mary and Peter to look into that tomb and to give us the first-hand account to say, Jesus isn't here. He is alive. Exhibit E. Saul's conversion. Or Paul, the one who wrote that 1 Corinthians passage. In Acts chapter 9, it says that Saul was on his way, on his way to crucify, or to, not crucify, excuse me, to, um, to accuse, to condemn, to beat, to intimidate others that were calling themselves Christians, people of the way at the time. He was on his way to do this, and a light from heaven shone down, knocked him off of his horse, and in that 1 Corinthians passage that we just read a second ago, Paul says, I saw Jesus. I don't even deserve to see this guy, but I saw him, and he spoke to me. And Paul goes from a man who persecutes the church, even puts Christians to death, and he turns into a preacher of the gospel. Exhibit E. Exhibit F. The first sermons that were preached in the book of Acts. After, after Jesus is, is put on the cross, he dies, he's resurrected. After Jesus ascends to heaven, the very first sermon that's preached in Acts chapter 2 by Peter, he drives home the point of the resurrection. In every key moment throughout the book of Acts, the disciples are driving home the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. And they won't let it go. And they keep pointing to it. And they keep preaching about it. And eventually it leads to exhibit G, the martyr, the martyred disciples. Did you know every single one of the disciples, except for Judas, who kills himself, and John, who is exiled to an island, all of those guys end up giving their lives brutally for the gospel? And that even Paul, the one who saw Jesus, who said, I'm not even worthy of that moment, that even he ends up giving his life? That these guys are not just, they don't just die because they get old, locked in cells. They die brutally. Some of them, biblical history tells us that some of them are killed on crosses, just like their Savior. Others of them are burned at the stake. Some of them are filleted alive. Others beheaded. Brutal, brutal types of deaths. Why would all of them die for a lie? Why would all of them, separated as they went... Why would they individually, not even knowing what the other person was doing, give their life in such a brutal way if it was just a lie? Well, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that's my evidence. Exhibits A through G. You can prosecute it in your mind. 
You can, you can try to destroy it all that you want. You can be the final judge today if you want to and go, it's not true. But let me just say this to you. If that's not true, then who is God? And if that's not true, how did you get here? And if that's not true, how did this entire universe that science studies and is wowed by, how did it get here? Who put it here? I'm telling you today, you put your hope and your faith in the resurrection of Christ. You just discovered who the one true living God was. You just discovered how you got here. You just discovered all about creation. You just discovered the one who transformed humanity. You put your hope and your faith in the resurrection, and it solidifies your Christianity. It solidifies your purpose on this earth. It solidifies your existence. It wipes away the questions. It wipes away the worry. It wipes away the hopelessness. But it instills hope in you. It instills life in you as it, as it puts on display Jesus, the one true living God. Jesus being God. But your faith has to be put in the resurrection. How does that happen? Well, that happens today very simply. You first have to die. You have to die spiritually. You have to, like Christ, give up your life and come to a point where you're willing to say, it's not my life that exists anymore, it's his life. And you have to die with Christ spiritually. You first have to say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord and the leader of my life. I want to come to you right now. And I want to put my faith and my hope in you. I want, I'm giving you freedom to transform me and to set me free. I believe in the resurrection, but the only way the resurrection can happen in you, the power of the resurrection to take place in your life, is that you first have to die. Resurrection has no power on the living. Resurrection only has power on the dead. Spiritually, you have to die. You have to come to Him, give up your dreams. You have to come to Him, give up Give up the things that you strive after. You have to come to Him and put your whole life in His hands. And then secondly, if you want to experience the power of the resurrection, then you have to die with Christ even physically. You know what that simply means? It simply means this. That as you live your life on this earth, you have hope of knowing that this is not where life ends, that there is a life beyond this. And that if you live your entire life down to your very last breath, and you end up in the grave, you can know for certain because of the resurrection of Christ, one day you too will be resurrected to spend eternity with Christ. I say to you that exhibits A through G. Skip A, it's the shroud. B through G. Point to a clear evidence that Jesus rose from the dead and that you can put your complete faith in Him because He is risen. Now today's message wasn't filled with a lot of jokes. It wasn't filled with a lot of personal stories. Today's message was just simply filled with God's word. And it'll be up to you to decide what you're going to do with the resurrection of Jesus. It's in your hands now. It's not in my hands. The Bible lets us know clearly that every man stands before God individually. I'm not some mediator for you. Christ is the mediator. And in a moment, our worship team is going to come. And when they do come, they're going to lead us in a time of response to God. And I want to encourage you, in this time of response to God, what are you going to do with the resurrection? What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to hold him at a distance, or are you going to surrender your life to him? Are you going to hold him at a distance, or are you going to proclaim that he is true, and that he is right, and then pursue him with everything you have in your heart? So in a moment, as they sing these songs, you've got a decision to make. You can sing them and not mean what you say, 
Or you can sing them and mean every single word to the depth of your heart. But that's in a moment of just simple prayer before God. Asking Him to be your Lord and your leader. To transform you and to change you into all that He wants you to be. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I want to encourage you. Take the evidence of the resurrection to God. And invite Him to be the Lord and the leader of your life. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you today. There's overwhelming evidence that points to the fact that you came to this earth because because you resurrected. If you resurrected from the dead like no other person has ever done, then all the other things must be true. That if we put our hope and our faith in the resurrection, then it lines up the rest of Christianity for us. And so many times we try to do it backwards. We, we, try to, we try to go through a gauntlet of things to try to wrestle with in our minds and in our hearts when really it's as simple as wrestling with the resurrection and finding hope and joy and life in the fact that Jesus, you rose again, you conquered death, hell, and the grave. You conquered sin that separates me from God. You established yourself as the one true living God and you became the foundation of my life. Because you became the foundation of Christianity. You became the foundation of my life by rising again from the dead. Now my life has purpose. Purpose beyond anything it ever could imagine. So Lord, in this place, in this auditorium, are people that are wrestling with the evidence of the resurrection, deciding what they're going to do with it today. Lord, I'm asking that, Lord, you would just continue to Um, by the power of your Holy Spirit that rose Christ from the dead, that that same Holy Spirit would just stir inside of their hearts, reminding them that you're for them, not against them, that you love them, that you sent your son Jesus to give his life on the cross, and yes, he even rose again for them, that they might have life. In this place, may there be a church full of people giving praise, glory, and honor to the risen Savior, his name being Jesus.